I'm Ethan. Uh, I'm about one year fresh out of seminary. And before I went to seminary, I was highly uh, insecure about my calling. Uh, before I became a Christian, I was not a great person. Uh, I was sort of a wild person, very hedonistic. And even after I became a Christian, I did not, it, it didn't immediately take with my behavior. I uh, continued in a lot of my sin. I, um, I was just kind of horrible. It took me a year before I even started going to church. And so naturally, I didn't feel like I was the best person to go into ministry, to go to seminary. Well, about two weeks before I left to go to seminary in Massachusetts, I'm from Alabama, I had a dream. And it was kind of a weird one. I dreamed that I was in this really big room. It was really white, very spotlessly white. And in the center of the room was a wardrobe. That was the only thing there in this giant room. And so I'm like, I'm going to go look at this wardrobe because that's what you do in dreams. You just do things. So I walk up to the wardrobe, I open it, and in there, there's nothing in there except a small folded up piece of paper. And as you do in dreams, I pick up the paper, unfold it, and all that's written there are these words, Matthew 7, 22 to 23. And then I wake up. So at the time I had been reading my Bible, I was about average on the Bible devotion scale, Uh, I was spending a lot of time in the Old Testament at that time, but I wasn't so devoted to reading the Bible that I knew what Matthew 7, 22 to 23 said. I don't think I knew what Matthew 7 was about, and I would actually be surprised if I could tell you why Matthew was special (laughs) compared to the other Gospels, right? So I had no idea what this said. So I get up, and I'm like, this is probably an encouragement from the Lord. (laughs) This is going to be a great thing for me. And I look at it, and this is what it says. I'll read it to you. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. That is not very encouraging. (laughs) This actually only solidified my insecurities about seminary. Um, But I met with my pastor. It's what you should do after a weird dream, apparently. And after talking to my pastor, he told me, these were probably demonic accusations. So it's probably demons trying to make me feel insecure about going to ministry, saying that I wasn't good enough to obey God, which is ridiculous, right? Now that really happened to me. And for a brief time, it opened up my eyes to the power of the demonic forces around us. And for the skeptic in the room, that probably, you're probably like, well, there's probably a lot of reasons that happened. That's okay. Um, I don't want to convince you in the sermon of that. What I want to talk about is how this is a reality, how there are truths about this reality that Christians should be aware of, and how this text, this true story, uh, demonstrates a great truth that we need to know about demonic forces, and it's this, all right? Jesus, the saving and sending king, is more powerful than the devil. Amen. Amen, right? Let's pray. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I want you to remember this, okay? So I'm going to say it again. Jesus, the saving and sending king, is more powerful than the devil. So, before we really dive in the text, I just want to look at verse 1 and 2 and set up the context here. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, that's Jesus, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs 
and met him. So let me back up a touch. Uh, Chapter 4 of Mark, the disciples and Jesus, they got on a boat and sailed across the Sea of Galilee, and they met a giant storm. And the disciples started freaking out. Jesus was taking a nap. You might know the story. And Jesus gets up, and he rebukes the storm. He doesn't calm it. He rebukes it, which is interesting, right? And he demonstrates that he is powerful over nature, and he's powerful over the chaos of the sea. Well, that picks up here in verse 1. They arrive on the shores of this non-Jewish region, okay? And Jesus is met with this man. And the, the story really starts here at verse 3 with this man. So let's, let's pick up here in verse 3. The man with the unclean spirit lived among the tombs, and no one combined him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So the thing that I want to point out about this particular piece of text is that the whole region of the Gerasenes is being affected by these demonic forces, not just the man. Okay, we're going to focus on the man first, but it's the whole region, okay? So, first thing that we learn about this man, he lives in the tombs. Now, I think that that's pretty naturally off-putting for us. (laughs) We don't really have to dissect that. Uh, I remember being in my small town in Alabama in high school, and we had this old graveyard, and there were rumors about it that people would go there at night and spend the night and there's just like weird cult and that all freaked us out. Uh, That's not a modern thing. I think that the people who read this text originally were like, oh, that's creepy. Uh, We actually have rabbinic literature of the time that says that if you uh, spent the night in a tomb or in a graveyard, like you were asking for a demon possession. And a lot of the qualities of people who are possessed by demons is like one of the things they do a lot is they hang out in graveyards all night, all day. Uh, So an original reader of this text would see he lived among the tombs, and they'd be like, oh, red flag, this is going to be a really weird story. Uh, Another thing that we see is that this man is physically out of control, and he's extremely strong. Uh, He he can't control his body, and and this results in him harming himself and breaking things. So just try to use your imagination. Think about how stressful it would be to be a a parent of someone like this. Some of you might not have to imagine that hard. But think about trying to go out in public, your annual festivals that you have, like having this type of person around who just was constantly out of control. It had to have been hard. There had to be so much sacrifice and patience for this man. And then finally we see that he rarely sleeps because he stays awake all night crying out and cutting himself with stone, harming himself, completely surrounded by death and decay in the tombs. So at this point, I want to ask a question. It's a question that I've had a lot. Maybe you guys have thought about it once or twice as well. Um, Here it is. Why are 2,000 demons possessing this one man? Doesn't that seem like a little bit excessive, (laughs) like even for demons? Usually the ratio is one demon per one person through the rest of the Bible. But here, we see that there are 2,000 for this one man. 
It's weird. Now, we can probably never know all the rationales for this from the demons, but I'll tell you what I suspect about this. I think this man is being possessed by 2,000 demons so that the demons could draw out the worst in the community by making one person extremely hard, like impossibly hard to be around, to be in community with, it causes others to make dehumanizing choices. This tormented man, instead of drawing out pity, instead of drawing out patience and love from others, is drawing out discouragement. It's drawing out uh, frustration and anger. And as a result, the community splits. And this is one of the main goals of the devil, is to split communities. Let me show you with my visual aid that I brought today. They tell you not to talk about Greek in sermons, but I actually am going one step ahead. (laughs) So, the word for uh, the devil, for diabolos, is actually a compound word in Greek. Dia means through, like a preposition, through, and balos is a form of the verb, which means to cast uh, or to throw. So, Diabolos actually literally means cast througher or splitter. The devil is all about splitting up communities, and it's why God wants a united church because we were meant to live in community. Hashtag Sunday school. That was the whole thing, right? So, even though the demons are ultimately to blame here, they're the enemy, the community around this man fell for the trap. Our text about the man literally says no one could bind him anymore. That he was often chained up, often shackled, and eventually it didn't work anymore. He was, so this is, I mean, this is what happens. Like these people will, out of frustration, chain this guy up so that they can go about their lives. Can you imagine actually doing that to a person? Trying to chain up like your neighbor or your child. Again, maybe somebody has been tempted about that for once. You need to talk to someone. We'll pray for you. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you disagree. I totally get that. I don't think that's totally crazy. Um, It must have been hard to live with this guy. 2,000 demons in one guy versus you. You probably would feel very powerless. But it still, to me, seems a little much to be chaining this guy up, to ostracize him to the tombs and to the mountains. It actually reminds me of a news story that I read about a year ago. It goes like this. Um, Authorities in Japan followed up on a tip about a very strange situation that was happening in a 73-year-old man's shed. Right? So they're the police. They're like, cool, we'll check it out. They drive over to the man's house, and they go to the man's shed, this 73-year-old man's shed, and they open the door. This is what they see. They find a wooden cage. It's a little bit over three feet tall, and a grown man in it. Under the man is a toilet sheet. It's made for indoor pets, this toilet sheet, and it's covered in human waste. The whole shed is just filthy. Apparently... This man was the son of the 73-year-old man. He was born with extreme mental disabilities. And as the son became a teenager, it became exhausting to deal with this 
this young boy's mental dif- difficulties, right? Here's literally what the problem was. He couldn't control his body, and he would break things. And so the father bound him up and put him in a cage for over 20 years. Yeah, that's crazy. The police actually discovered that the man's back was permanently damaged, permanently hunched over uh, for being in that cage for so long, and he was blind from all the infections from the human waste around him for over 20 years. Think about what that would do to a person, first of all, and then think about what it would take for someone to do that to their own son. That's demonic. That is purely demonic. So it's important for us to note here that Jesus isn't just walking up on the shores of this tormented man, but he's walking up on the shores of a whole region that is being tormented by demonic forces, a whole region that's reeking of death and decay, a whole region that, of people that are selfish, they're greedy, they're dead in their trespasses, and they're living in a fractured community, trying to sleep as they ignore the cries of this man calling out at night calling out during the day. But Jesus doesn't leave the situation to rot. Uh, Jesus comes through, thankfully, and the demons know that it's going to happen. They've already tried to throw a storm at Jesus and his disciples. And in chapter 4, remember that whole thing, and it didn't work. Jesus rebukes the storm. So let's see what happens in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there, on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the sea. So you can tell that these demons are waiting for Jesus in verse six. Uh, their front line is all packed into this one guy, and he's on the mountain watching the shores, waiting. Strategy number one was the storm. It failed. Couldn't stop Jesus. And so now we see this man gaunt, covered in infected wounds, probably running down the hill, enacting strategy number two. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Adjure is kind of like a funny old-timey word that I've literally never used before. Uh, I like the NIV translation here a little bit more. It says, in God's name, don't torture me. And while I was prepping for the sermon, I actually translated it, I am causing you to swear an oath by God not to torture me. So the strategy, this is the great strategy, is to force Jesus to swear an oath by God that he won't hurt the demons. Jesus, who is the eternal God in flesh. Jesus, who just stopped the raging storm with his words, who's the mighty judge of all people and all spirits. Here's the thing, y'all. The demons do actually have jurisdiction over this place because Satan was the prince of the world, right? And Jesus comes as 
the one in the the one true king in the line of David, and he's destined for the throne over the world, and he cast the devil out at the cross. So that worked. And this legion thinks that Jesus would be willing to negotiate with them. He's so desperate to hold on to this region that they ask to be sent into some pigs. And you can just see Jesus chuckle at this. (laughs) Okay, if you want to bargain, go into the pigs. See what happens. The pigs, of course, rush down into the waters below and they drown. That's a good question, and I'm about to tell you. I'm really glad you asked it, because that's a great transition. Um, this is where a lot of people get tripped up, right? Why? First of all, Jesus doesn't acquiesce to the demons. He's showing them something, and he's showing us something, right? Something about the fate of all the demons that tempt us, that bother us, that deceive us, that accuse us mislead us? See, throughout the whole Bible, the ocean, the waters, the sea, they represent chaos, judgment, and destruction. So change your Bible reading if you didn't know that. I mean, just for example, when God creates order out of chaos, what's there? Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the chaos. When God sees an abundance of evil in the world, what does he do? Sins of flood, right? When the Israelites are running away from the Egyptians, God, you know, gets Moses to split the sea. They walk through safely, but God crushes the Egyptians with the waves of the ocean. That's just through Exodus. If you keep going, it keeps showing up. Um, And so we're not seeing Jesus negotiate with these demons. We're not seeing Jesus give in to them. I believe and I'm not the only one who believes it, but there are, different, there are different opinions. I believe Jesus is destroying them in real time. The Gospel of Luke actually makes it a little bit more explicit. The Gospel of Luke says it like this, and it was written after Mark, so there's a definite mod- modification there. And the demons begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. The abyss. That's the key word. Because in biblical terms, the abyss is actually located at the bottom of the ocean. And it's the ultimate destination for all demonic forces, as we see in Revelation. That's where they go. So I think that these demons are getting an express pass to destruction. That's why. So Jesus meets the first defense of the demons in the storm. He silences it with a word, no problem. He meets the second defense of the demons in this man who is possessed by an army. And he actually frees the man and destroys the demons. Jesus proves himself to be the true king of this world because he is the saving and sending king much more powerful than the devil. Now, some of you might be saying, I don't know, man, 2,000 pigs, that's a lot. Jesus did just allow these people's livelihoods to be ruined. I get that. This is not an easy text, and the Bible is full of texts like these. But I do want to remind you that the people here are not innocent bystanders, okay? 
They probably did the best they could. But ultimately, they dehumanized this man. And Jesus looked at this chaos. He looked at this heartache. He looked at this fallen situation. And he was furious. He was furious at the demonic powers of this town. And he looks them dead in the eye and says, You're no longer in charge here. I'm the conquering king. And I'm casting you out. You don't get to pass go. You don't get $200. You don't get new hosts. And you certainly don't get to stay here. You get early destruction. Because I'm God and I love my people. And if you want to talk about oaths, I made an oath to my people, not to you. They were not made to be tortured by the likes of you. In fact, I'm going to give my people authority over you. And you have to crawl on your belly all the way to destruction. If that's not enough, one last thing. Do you think that your soul is worth the lives of 2,000 pigs? Because God thinks that it is. In fact, God thinks that your life is worth the death of the Son of God himself. That's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, Jesus wasn't killed by mistake. He did it on purpose. His life wasn't taken away from him as if he was a victim. He laid it down for us. And I hope someone needs to hear this because I'm kind of going for a long time right now. But God loves you ferociously. And you don't have to be smart enough. You don't have to be holy enough. You don't even have to be likable enough. Because he loved you before all that. He initiated all that. He actually loves you and sees your life as more valuable than you could even Think about. So, now that the demons are taken care of, we are left with this man and the people of this region. Let's pick up in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. Pause. I just want to take a second to note that this is a little tricky. These herdsmen would have been gone for a very long time. Just think about, like, going east to Albemarle, just walking, spending some time there, walking down to the downtown mall, spending some time there, and then walking back here. You have to tell the whole story over and over. You have to eat, maybe go to the bathroom, wait on slow people. Like, this is a long time, a small verse, but a lot of time passes here, okay? So, let's pick back up again, verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So everyone returns, and they all look at this man the man that they had been trying to forget existed. And he's fully clothed, and he's totally in a sound mind. And I love this detail. He's sitting. So this is a lot like rabbis and their students. When students would learn from their teachers, from their rabbis, they would sit at the feet of their rabbis. So this man has not only gotten clothed, has a stable mind now, He's also become a disciple of Jesus. He's learning from Jesus. He's sub- submitted his life under Jesus. 
him being clothed is also an interesting detail. Uh, in the ancient times, if, if someone were to clothe you, someone with a, of a higher status were to clothe you, that was you receiving honor. Uh, it was disgraceful to be naked. Um, and it, it actually kind of makes sense if you think about it with uh, Joseph in the story of his colorful coat. The reason the brothers were all mad wasn't because he had a coat that they didn't have. It was because Jacob was giving Joseph special honor, right? And so Jesus has taken this man with no honor, this disgraceful man, and has bestowed honor upon him with these clothes. But, as we see, the people are immediately suspicious. And you almost can't blame him. But think about what it must have been like to see this guy that they knew was absolutely out of control, absolutely crazy, and he's sitting there with another guy. It almost makes Jesus seem a little suspicious himself, so they ask him to leave. But essentially, the people don't believe that this tormented man could really change. In their minds, he's always going to be like that. Now, we have seen Jesus take this man from the tombs of death and brought him into life. We've seen Jesus wipe out the man's former master, Legion, and Jesus himself becomes this man's master. He becomes this man's king. And we've seen Jesus bestow honor on this man. But the people around him don't see that. They see the dead man, the old man. They don't see the new creation before their eyes. And this isn't very different from what happens to us when we become saved or when, from when we repent from sin, right? I wasn't always a Christian like we talked about. And, I mean, I was very rebellious in high school. And fortunately, I was able to graduate high school and I left my hometown. I went to college. And after my first year of college, I became a Christian. And it, it was pretty slow at first, but eventually I started going to church and I'd really submitted my life to Christ, and I slowly started to become a little bit more like Christ. After college, I moved back to my hometown, and I started teaching there. And one night, I met this girl. It wasn't Katie. I met this girl, and I asked her on a date the next day, and she was like, yeah, and that was great. Uh, So the night after I met her, or the day after I met her, uh, she went to work, and she realized that she worked with people that I went to high school with. People that knew who I was before I became a Christian. Now, maybe they didn't hear that I'd become a Christian, or if they did hear that I'd become a Christian, they didn't believe it, because this is what they said to her. (laughs) Be careful around Ethan. He might force you to do drugs. What? They actually forced them to do drugs? I have literally never forced anyone to do drugs or to really ingest anything. Like, that's kind of crazy. Also, I'm a Christian now. Like, I try not to force anyone to do anything. I'm actually a pretty nice guy, I'm pretty sure. I don't do that stuff. These people don't even know me. They're the worst. They're gossipers. (laughs) So I pouted, and I crossed my arms for about two years until I was able to leave my hometown. But listen, I was wrong. My attitude was not justifiable. That was actually the wrong response, because Jesus is the saving king, and he's also the sending 
king. Look, look with me in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The all-knowing Jesus did not bring this man from death to life for nothing. Because part of being a disciple of Christ is working on his behalf and following in his ministry. And you've got to appreciate this guy. I mean, he just does it. He's like, okay. Because <laughs> let's be real, Jesus might have been the very first friend this man ever had. And he saw an opportunity to get in this boat and leave this former life behind him. He wouldn't have to deal with the awkward, you know, yeah, I used to be this guy that lived in the tombs and I was kind of weird. He wouldn't have to deal with the realization that popped on people's faces when he walked into a room. He wouldn't have to go through the trouble of finding a roommate. That'd be pretty hard. And actually, he wouldn't really have to forgive anybody. He could just leave it. But Jesus says no to him, and he says no to us. He says no. He actually says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Your friends. That's intentional language. I don't know if that guy considered those people his friends. Actually, in Greek, it literally says, go home to your own ones. The people who treat us poorly, the people who gossip about us and judge us, they're not our enemies. They belong to us, and we belong to them. They are our own ones. And you know what? Tormented man totally obeys. God bless him. Today you can go home and read in Mark 7 about how when Jesus returns to this region, people are lined up, ready to learn from him, ready to follow him. Because this man was faithful to Jesus' command. He prepared that region for Jesus' return. They all saw from this man's life that Jesus is the saving and the sending king, and he is more powerful than the devil. So, let me hit you with this fact as I close. Um, The tormented man, as much as he was a victim in this story, deserves the love of Christ just as much as the people of this region, which is not at all. The people of this region, uh, they might have been villains, but so is this tortured man. In fact, we are all villains. We're all rebels against God, and none of us deserve to be saved by him. But Jesus looks at our state. He looks at the so-called obstacles before him, and he says, yeah, that's not going to be a problem for me. I am the saving king, and I am more powerful than the devil. My love for my people, it doesn't run out. My love and my goodness doesn't run out. My patience and my faithfulness doesn't run out. He comes into our dirty, broken situations and heals us. He bestows honor unto us, and he teaches us, and he spends time with us. He saves us. And we may have a good period of rest, but then he says, it's time to get to work because I'm the saving king, but I'm also the sending king. 
he sends us to our own ones to tell them how much the Lord has done for us and how merciful he is and how good he is, how sweet it is to know him. And we will be written off. We will be viewed skeptically, distrusted, and mocked. But that's all the work of the great splitter. That's the devil creating those boundaries between us and our own ones. So remember that Jesus is our saving and sending king, much more powerful than the devil. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you so much uh, for your faithfulness, for the prayers of these people who prayed for me uh, as I prepared this sermon. I thank you for our guests. Um, I pray that you would bless their ministry, and I pray that the word that I delivered today was from you. Uh, I pray that our hearts would be changed and molded and formed towards you and in love so that we could become more like you, that we would be great representatives of this kingdom that you are bringing to earth. Thank you for all these things, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.